So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, reading verses 23 through 27, but we will focus this morning on 24 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to please bring it alive and to apply it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are very strong words that our, our Savior utters here. Certainly not the picture of Jesus that is so often portrayed in evangelical churches today. And Lord, you know that I tremble in my heart as I prepare to exposit these words that I know that Jesus is doing one of the things he came to do, which is to reveal reality to us. And the reality is not always one that we enjoy hearing about but it is a vital part of the gospel. It's the vital part of your salvation. We need to know how lost we are. And we need to know what happens to us and those who do not know you and reject you and reject your word and reject your person. And so, dear Lord, I pray that you would give me the words that you want me to share, that they would be clear and concise, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, any of you who have spent any amount of time evangelizing, sharing your faith with other people, engaged in some kind of an outreach ministry, will understand the frustration that I'm about to describe. To describe. I, I knew a man one time, and actually he could have been any number of men and women that I have known, but this particular man stands out just because his life was such a mess. He was one of those guys that every aspect of his life was in absolute turmoil. He was in the middle of a, of a divorce that had turned really bitter and nasty and and most of you know that, that when that happens, there's also a very ugly custody battle for the children. This particular man was in and out of court. He was in and out of, of jail. He was in and out of drugs. He was in and out of alcohol. And, and it didn't matter what our conversation would be, whether it was his finances, whether it was his job or his boss or his social life, his emotions, or even his political views. Everything was in a state of chaos. He was a man who, I, must, I can honestly say, was angry with everyone he knew and everything that happened. And somehow I ended up in the middle of a part of this and got to know him, and I was able to share the gospel with him several times and to tell him that Jesus offered. He didn't offer a rose garden. He wasn't going to change everything. I mean, we still suffer. We still have trials and tribulations. But when you give your life to Jesus, there's a balance. There's a harmony. There's joy. There's hope. There's a future. There's meaning to your life, all of which were lacking in his. And... Over and over again, I would share the good news of Christ with him, and over and over again, he would just totally reject it. And I asked him one time, I said, why, why are you so insistent upon rejecting the very thing that can save you? Do you know what he said? He said, because I don't want to give all this up. I said, give what up? life in the sewer? Is that what you don't want to give up? And he gave me this real sardonic smile. And he said, yeah, I'm not willing to give up life in the sewer. That is frustrating. 
When you're trying to show somebody the, the, the something that can completely change their lives and they just grab on and hold on to the darkness and avoid the light. But if that is frustrating for us, can you imagine how it must have been for Jesus? Because Jesus was that light. Jesus knew the reality of, of the cosmos, of heaven, of God. He understood that. And one of the reasons that he came was to reveal that reality to us, to show us that we're the ones who are living in an illusion. We're the ones living in Disney World, if you will. That there's another reality, there's another dominion, there's an entirely different perspective on life. And he was here to show it. Remember that great conversation he had with Pilate uh, at the time of his uh, of his trial? When he said to Pilate, he says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. That's when Pilate cynically said, what is truth? Really reflecting the whole concept. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that I have come to show you what reality is. I want you to know what it's like to live in the real world. That the world that you live in is not. It's temporal. It's going to pass away. You may also remember that conversation started when Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And then, in all intents and purposes, Jesus says, yes, you know, you say so. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. There's another reality and this isn't it. Let me tell you about the reality of heaven. Let me tell you that there is a God in heaven and there's a king of this kingdom. And he is perfect and he is holy and he judges sin. And he is wrathful at your sin. And this world, even though you bury your head in the sand and don't believe it, it doesn't change it. There is a God who is just and he is holy and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So therefore, that's what Jesus is going to share with us in our passage this morning. He's going to share with us reality, the real world. And I can only pray that you will recognize that that is the only reality that matters. The reality of God. Now, the way we got to this passage and where we are in the book of Luke is Luke has been hammering us. There's a flow of thought that I want to make sure that we follow. Luke has really been revealing to us that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He is the supernatural, miracle-working, sovereign God in the flesh. And that he has come and that all these things that he is doing has been to reveal that, that he indeed, as Peter has just said, he is the Christ of God. And that is going to be really kind of reach its zenith in the next passage when we see him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration and we actually see his glory. Well, there's another theme. We talked about this last week that has been developed right along with this. And that theme is the fact that the disciples are, in a subtle way so far, they're beginning to take over the ministry that Jesus has introduced. We saw the 12 go out and they had the power to heal and the power to throw out demons. And they were proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And up until that point, it had been Jesus and Jesus alone. But we've also noticed that even as their work for the kingdom becomes more important, and they begin to realize more and more their own insignificance and, and, and the great preeminence of Christ. And, and, and then just a couple of verses ago, Luke really stunned us, so had to really stunned the disciples. When after building Jesus up, Jesus is going to be the very Christ of God. He then goes and says that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected. And be killed at the hands of mortal man. And that just really confused them. But then last week we read verse 23. And verse 23 was when Jesus turned to those disciples and not just them but to all. And he said, you also, if you follow after me, must be prepared to suffer as I have suffered. And we 
kind of need to go back to that verse just a wee bit. I'm not going to go into any near the detail that we did last week. In it, but I just need to establish a couple of things there. Because what you will see in verse 24, 25, and 26, they all start with the same word in English, the word for. And that means that the thought is just cascading down through each one of those verses. So let's go back to the 23rd verse just very briefly and see what Jesus is saying there. And he said to all... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Pay particular attention to when Jesus says, or when Luke tells us, and he said to all. Now what that means, and I shared this last week, marks a little bit more detail. The crowd and the disciples were there. So in other words, the words that Jesus is saying is to a group of people, both his disciples, people who are perhaps coming out of darkness, finding themselves as his disciples, but then they're all also, those who had no, no, no interest at all in being his disciples, the curiosity seekers, the miracle um, uh, chasers. And then, of course, there's the antagonists, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and, and the elders and those, uh, including the high priest, who would eventually uh, drive him to the cross. Those who were absolutely opposed and would reject and were totally ashamed of what he was saying. Now, last week we talked an awful lot about the God of self and worshiping self and placing self on the throne of our lives and 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 not worshiping Jesus and and idolizing ourselves. Well, that's going to be very prevalent in our passage this morning because Jesus he kind of stuns modern Christendom when he says there's three things that if you want to follow after me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to come after me, this is a hard road and narrow gate, but at the end of this road is heaven, okay? And if you want to follow after me, there's three things that you need to know. One, deny self, and there goes most of evangelical America right there. Two, pick up your cross daily and follow me. We realize that that was both a statement of being willing, if necessary, to die for the cause of Christ. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you will. Most of those who were there, most of his disciples who were there, would actually die that way. But it, it also has the meaning of to lose one's identity. We talked about that last week. Someone walking through town carrying their own cross. It didn't matter who they were before. That's gone. Their identity is lost. The only thing that defines them at this point is that cross. And, and, and if we're following Jesus, then the only thing that defines us, whoever we were, that's gone. Now we are defined by the cross of Jesus Christ. We are his. We are redeemed. We are new creations in Christ. And so that's what Jesus is establishing. These are the, the characteristics of true discipleship. And, of course, the final, and follow me. This isn't just arbitrary. It's not just random. These are suffering for Jesus. This is losing one's identity for Jesus. And, if necessary, dying. Not just to die as a martyr, but to die as a martyr for Jesus, for his sake. Because we are his disciples. Now, with that thought firmly in our mind, Jesus goes on, and there's th basically three things that he's going to establish. First of all, he's going to tell us a paradox, a paradox of discipleship. Then he, he's going to give us a logical argument of, of why it's ridiculous to worship self. And then finally, the devastating, horrific consequences of indeed worshiping self rather than Christ. So with that said, Let's take a look at this text starting in the 24th verse. Now, there's some words that I want to point out first before I start talking about the paradox. As I've already stated, look first at the word for. Now, it's not the first word in the Greek, but it's the first word in English in all three of these verses. And what that means is that the idea that we just expressed in verse 23 is simply flowing all the way through these verses where they're building upon one another and not taken separately. So, for, he starts out, whoever would save his life. Now, I'm going to speak an awful lot about whoever. In fact, I'm going to, I've made up a word. There's no plural to whoever, but I'm going to say the whoever's, okay? Because basically in this verse, Jesus gives us two whoever's. 
Now, when they're taken together, these whoever's are all inclusive. In other words, every person on the planet falls into the two whoever's that Jesus is talking about. However, he divides all of humanity into two groups. There is a whoever who will try to save the life now. And then there's a whoever who will lose the life now for his sake. And, 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 you know, people say about Jesus that, oh, you know, Jesus is all about unity and love and the whole place get together. And, well, you know, we don't want any divisiveness at all. Jesus was the most divisive person almost in Scripture. Jesus constantly divided the world into two groups. The wheat and the tares, the, the sheep and the goats, the whoever's who will follow him and the whoever's won't. And so, therefore... The whoever's here are of great importance as we make our way through. Notice also again, he says, for whoever would save his life. We talked about that would last week. That, that you know, in English, it can be a whim or a fancy. But in, in the Greek, it's a little bit stronger. In other words, there's a decision in there. There's a decisiveness. There's a volition. There's a will. Okay, I decide. This is my nature deciding for me. So it's not just a whim. That there's whoever would or makes the decision to save his own life or life in the here and now. Now, we're going to get to life later, the word life, because that's kind of the key of this paradox. But when Jesus says losing and saving, and and that's kind of the switch here, you you know, uh, whether you're actually losing or saving your life here or the life in the world to come, um, the losing is a little stronger than just to misplace something. It's a word that actually means to lose something by destroying it. Okay, and, and that's a little bit stronger. You lose it, it's gone because you destroyed it. So it, 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 you lose life because you actively would destroy it. And then secondly, the saving, of course, is holding on to something. It's preserving it, sustaining it. Now with those words kind of in our minds, let's, let, let's zero in on just the one that really is the paradox here. And that's the word life. Now, when Scripture talks about life, um, it talks about a variety of different things. Life can mean different things. I'm just going to zero in on two of them, the two that Jesus is referring to here. Now, when I say that there's a play on words with life, what I'm doing is I'm counting the pronoun it as the word life. In other words, Jesus actually says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Well, that it, we might as well just say that whoever would lose his life, um, would, would save his life, will lose his life. And I'll explain the two different kinds of lives there because that's the play on word here, on that word. First of all, as I said um, just a few minutes ago, that in Scripture we hear an awful lot about the word life. Well, the the first life that Jesus is talking about is the physical life in the here and now, the biological life. We're alive when uh, we're breathing, when our heart's beating, and when our brain is firing electrical impulses. When all of that stops, the life stops. It, it ends. So, in a sense, the life that of the first part is the life that starts when you take your first breath and ends when you take your last. It's the life in the here and now. But it's more than that. That's an oversimplification of it. Because it's not just the way that Jesus uses it here. It's not just the biological, physical life that you have and the time that you spend alive. It's also what you do in that life. And particularly the decisions that you make, the the, the will that you exert, um, what you give yourself to, what what your, 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 your dedications are, and especially in this sense, who... You worship. Well, the other kind of life, and again, it's a pronoun it that he uses, but the other kind of life is not the life in this world. It's the life that starts after this world. Actually, your soul never dies, but in the life that is everlasting, the life in the not yet, it begins when this life ends. So when you take your last breath here, that's when your life begins there. And and, and even though... When John uses the word life, and I know that many of you were in that study, when he uses the word life in that context, usually he's talking about eternal life with 
Jesus, with God in heaven. But in the context that he's using it now, it is simply the life that exists after this one. It is an eternal life. But based on what you do in this life will determine whether that life is a life of reward in heaven with God or whether it's a life of torment in hell with the devil and his angels. So, so that's the kind of the, the meaning that we have of life. Now, let's kind of delve into it and see what Jesus says about those two lives. For whoever, now again, the group of whoever, again, taken together, it's everybody on the planet. But when you talk about whoever, within a group, within a subset You're talking about a mutually exclusive group. In other words, there's not people who are in both groups here. We'll talk later on. There is a transition from one group to the next, uh, only from the darkness into light and not the reverse from light back to dark. We'll talk about that later on. But there are two groups and they are mutually exclusive. You are either in one or you are in the other. You're either weeds or you're you're wheat. You're, You're either sheep or goats. And, and so this is the whoever that is going to worship self and deny Christ. So he says, for whoever um, uh, loses his life, for, I'm sorry, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Now, when Jesus talks about saving the life now, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, I, I'm just, just for ease of designation. From here on out, I'm going to talk about the first life I described, the life in the here and now, as simply the life now with a hyphen. Life now with a hyphen. That's the life that I'm talking about that Jesus says, whoever now would save his life now will lose his life eternal. That's the way we're going to talk about the second one. Again, hyphenated. Life eternal is the life after this one. Life now is the life that is here. So what you could do to clarify what Jesus is saying here is he's saying for whoever would save his life now will lose his life eternal. Okay, basically that's what he means. Now, Jesus is making a statement here. He is telling us That the way that we live this life and the things that we do and the decisions that we make will impact and affect and actually determine our life eternal. Now, let me hasten to say something. It does not mean you're a good person in this world. You're going to be rewarded in the life to come. That's not the way it works. And we've made that clear. We've made it clear over the last couple of weeks when we've talked about the debits that show up in your ledger every time you transgress against a holy God and the absolute inability that you have to eradicate or erase or remove one single one of those debits with any good works because all of our good works are like filthy rags before the Lord. So therefore, when we talk about our own ledger, we talk about a ledger that is thick with red ink of the debits and zero, absolutely nothing in that credit column. And so therefore, when he says that someone is going to live their light, hold on to self, worship and and, and bow the knee to self and the culture that is here will lose, cause to be perished their life eternal. In other words, a, a, a life in hell. Now, that's the, that I, I, I realize that that's a, a, a very difficult statement, but basically what he's saying is that if you're worshiping self, if you're living for self, if, if self is your God that you have placed on the throne of your life, then you're not going to be trusting Jesus. And the only way that you get the red ink off of your ledger is through Jesus because Christ is the only one who actually can atone for a sin against the holy God. And so by trusting and believing in him, that's the way that we are atoned. His sacrificial substitutional atonement that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And without that, the red ink remains on your ledger and you face the wrath of God on your own. And there's nothing that can be done to change that. Jesus is not here just to to say arbitrary words. He is here to bear witness to the truth. 
to tell you that there is a reality. And the reality is that God is holy and perfect in his righteousness and you're not. And you cannot have relationship with him. You cannot be reconciled with him. And so therefore you need a savior. That's the reality that Jesus is trying to express. It's actually great news. But the great news is only great as great as the bad news is bad. Because you can't save yourself. And so Jesus makes it very clear that if, if you live a life for self, you're, you're not going to be trusting Jesus. And therefore you lose the life eternal. But then he turns it around and he says it in a completely different way. He says, but whoever, again, the, who, the next whoever, the other group of all humanity, he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's a couple of things I want you to see there. Once again, Jesus makes it clear that if you lose the life now for his sake, you will save the life eternal after this. Now, what do you think Jesus means when he says, whoever actually loses his life now? Does that mean you've got to live this sort of depressed, you know, scornful, inhibited life? That there's no... Fun. There, there's no enjoyment. There's no fulfillment. You, you have to live in a world of gray instead of living in a world of of, of color. Really? Of course not. And, and in fact, it's exactly the opposite. Jesus is not asking you to lose that which is good in life. He's asking you to lose that which is evil and sinful. In other words. And this goes back to my friend that I was trying to express. He wants you to lose the sewer, okay? He wants to lead you to green pastures and clear waters and, and, and to lead you down a path. Will it be hard? Yes, sometimes it will be hard. Will it be difficult? Yes, sometimes it'll be difficult. Will there be suffering along the way? Yes, sometimes there will be. But at the end of that road is the glory that is his his world that he is invited and is taking you to. That's the reality. That world is more real than ours is. And so therefore he calls us to follow him out. Not out of fun. Not out of good times. Not out of the good life. But out of the sewer. I think I told you last week. And I'm very careful about the way I say this. Because... Scripture tells us without question over and over again that there is a reward, there is a recompense, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Paul makes it absolutely clear that if there is no resurrection and if this life is all there is, then we're just a, a pitiful group of people, the most pitiful people on earth. So I don't question the life everlasting, but I'm telling you something, that if there was no life everlasting, I would still be a Christian. Because my life as a Christian has been so much fuller, so much richer, so much more meaningful and actually joyful. Although I'm not joyful all the time, but uh, even joyful and hopeful and, and, and balanced than my life was before. I would never go back to my life before. It, it, it's just, it, it, it's, it's not even a question. And so therefore, Jesus is not asking you to leave fun. Of course, when you're first saved, you kind of think that, don't you? We'll talk about that a little bit later on, there's a fear that you're leaving all that's good in life and you're just going to live in these this gray, sort of empty, sterile environment. Of course, that is anything but true. Now, I want you to notice one more thing about this verse. Jesus doesn't just say whoever will lose his life. I mean, from my, I'm sorry. He doesn't just say whoever will lose his life now will save his life eternal. He makes it clear whoever will save his life now for my sake. Once again, this is not just arbitrary piety. This is not just being good people. This is not just living according to standards. In fact, I believe that there is embedded in these words, I'm not sure that it was the intention that Luke had, and so therefore I'm not going to say that it is, but there's something that this says to me that transcends our normal concept of discipleship. In my mind, there is a difference between being a disciple between following Christ, between knowing what he wants us to do and, and living according to those dictates and doing what I do for his sake. 
It's to do something for his sake is to do something so that he will be honored. Always thinking about him. Always thinking about his glory. And so therefore, when I make my decisions, whether it's the clothes that I wear or whether it's what I drink or the movies that I watch or or where I go on the Internet or in social media, it's the language that I use is whatever I do. I don't sit here and compare it to a set of rules and say, am I fitting into these rules? I say, is that going to glorify my Lord who I love? Am I doing this for his sake, for his glory? And I truly think that that is a a whole nother level of discipleship. But nonetheless, after he makes that paradox of of living life in the here and now and living life eternally, he goes on to make a, a logical argument concerning this. Notice what he says in the next verse. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus uses financial language, actually, almost. Um, I just talked a few minutes ago, and I talked several weeks ago about that ledger that uh, we all have about between the good things we do and whether or not any of those things have actually been atoned for and forgiven. Well, every organization needs to keep a ledger like that, whether you're a for-profit business or like the church, a not-for-profit business. We're all called to keep financial records of what comes in and what goes out, our credits and our debits, our income and expenses. And a profit-loss statement is simply on a regular basis. We do it every month and every quarter and every year uh, where where you tally up all of, of the credits, all of the income, and then you tally up all of the expenses, you categorize them all, and you get a big sum total and you separate, you divide, I mean, sorry, you subtract one from the other. And if it's a positive number, you're operating in a profit. If it's a negative number, well, you're operating at a loss. And, and that's essential for every business, every organization, no matter what it is, to be able to to know whether it can pay its bills or not, whether it can keep uh, its doors open. But Jesus isn't talking finances here. He's using the language of finance, but he's talking spiritual, a spiritual profit loss statement. And brothers and sisters, every single one of us This is one thing that unbelievers just never do. I I never wanted to do it when I was an unbeliever. I ran from this. It scared me to death. But as believers, we need to stop on a regular basis and take a spiritual profit loss statement, if you will, to to, to calculate what where our profits are and, and, and what our losses are and to see where we stand in that process. So Jesus is using that language when he, he, he makes a, a, a statement that is pure hyperbole. What does it profit a man? What does it gain? What does it benefit? What's the advantage if you gain the whole world, but you lose himself? Now, I know that most of us really can't get our heads around that. We just kind of read it and pass through it. We don't really stop to think about what that actually means. What does Jesus mean when he says, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world? Well, what that means is all the wealth in this world. Every speck of gold, every speck of silver, every speck of platinum, all of the real estate, all of the money in all of the banks, and all of the material values that are here. You own every single bit of it. Not only do you own everything, but you are the sole sovereign ruler of every person who lives on this planet. And you determine their destiny and you make decisions for them. You rule over them with absolute sovereignty. Two things come to my mind. Again, I don't think this was necessarily what Luke was intended, but these are the things that come to my mind. First of all, It's almost exactly what Satan tempted Jesus with in the desert. You remember when he flashed all the kingdoms of the world in front of him and all the people who are in those kingdoms? And he says, if you'll just simply bow down to me, I'll I'll give you the wealth of the world. I will literally give you the whole world. And of course, we know Jesus as the incarnate son of God already owns it. So he doesn't need to, to, to fall to that temptation. But oh my goodness, brothers and sisters, how easy it is for us to fall over. 
Now, Satan doesn't have to offer us the whole world, does he? he just, just a minuscule sliver of it. Oh, I really want a new car. All I really wants a new house and a better job and a vacation and a little bit more free time. And, and you're willing to sell your soul for it and, and, and to, to worship yourself and for that to be your total focus in life. It is so easy to throw that up in front of us. But that brings something else to mind. When Jesus talks about owning the whole world and being the the sovereign ruler over all the people on earth. What being actually owns the whole world? What being actually is the one who sovereignly destines and determines the destination of every person on earth? And in fact, doesn't just own this earth, but owns the entire universe and everything in it. The very God that you're trying to kick off the throne of your life and replace with yourself. Okay? The only one who actually owns everything is is God himself. And for some reason, we're not making the connection. We're kicking God off the throne and putting ourselves on the throne and worshiping self when he's the one who actually owns the whole world. Well, nonetheless, Jesus uses this as hyperbole and just a sort of a rhetorical question. What? advantage what value is there if you actually own the whole world but you lose or forfeit yourself what a poor trade that is what an absurd trade that is to to exchange yourself for something that is temporal and that is simply passing away. And yet Jesus uses those words again. The word lose, once again, that is a word that doesn't just mean to misplace. It means to destroy. So a man who has a loving wife and loving children and goes out and has a torrid affair with another woman and loses his wife and his family, he didn't just misplace them. He destroyed them. And that relationship that he had is lost forever. And it's the same thing. What value is it if you had the entire world and you destroy your life eternal? You, you, you lose it. Not because it ran away from you. Not because someone took it from you. But because you consciously destroyed it. He uses that language of forfeit. Once again, referring back to the language of of, of the finances, because that which you thought you had, that which you thought was of such great value, that which you gave your life to and your dreams to and your aspirations to and your imaginations and your worship, that's all gone. It means zero. It means nothing. And you stand before the great white throne of God in judgment and all of that is absolutely gone. You forfeit whatever you thought you had. That's not a good trade, folks. And, and don't think that I'm reading this into what Jesus says. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. Jesus came to warn us of the reality of God's world. And he does it over and over again. In Matthew, he says it very clearly. When, when there, there, there's a judgment and, and the world is separated and the two whoever's. He says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. A little bit later on in Luke, we'll read the story of Lazarus. And that just kind of illustrates what Jesus is saying here. There was a rich man who had everything. Sold his soul, we assume, for the things that he had. Lived in splendor. And then there is a desperate poor man in his gates. Named Lazarus. And they both die. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. Which would be a metaphor for heaven. And the rich man goes into total torment and anguish in hell. And this is what the rich man says. He called out. Father Abraham have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water. And cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. That's not my words. I'm not making that up. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth and he is warning you that there is eschatological judgment when this life is over and you will stand before the great white throne of God. 
and for you to exchange your life eternal for the baubles of this world just simply is a very poor trait. Last thing I want you to see in this verse is the way that Luke uses the word himself here instead of the more familiar uh, what Matthew and Mark say that and lose his own soul or forfeit his own soul. And I think that the reason Luke does that is he's staying on the same track that I'm trying to stay on where there's a discussion of who's on the throne of your life. Is, is it him? Is it Jesus? Or is it self? And so Luke is making that absolutely clear as he takes us through this, um, this gospel. Well, anyway, now that he has established the paradox and, and, and he's talked about the, the, just the logical, the, the illogical uh, assumption that you would exchange your life eternal for whatever uh, uh, baubles you can have on this earth, then he, 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 he discusses the consequences. And once again, this is strong language. But Jesus didn't come to mince words. He, he really didn't. And, and, and the belief that Jesus never said anything divisive and, and didn't divide the world into two groups, that, that's just false. That's just not what the Bible says. And so here's what he says as far as the consequences of this entire discussion. Verse 26. For whoever, there's that word again, for, showing that the thoughts are, are, are continuing on, and the word whoever. So now he's talking about just one of the previous whoever's that he's talking about. This is the whoever group that worships self rather than Jesus. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the son of man be ashamed. When he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. There are a few more sobering words in scripture than these are. The cost of rejection. Jesus, back in um, whatever verse it was, the 23rd verse, I'm sorry, talked about the cost of discipleship. And we talk an awful lot about the cost of discipleship, but here he talks about the devastating cost of rejecting Jesus, of not being a disciple. And, and And he uses a particular word here. The word is ashamed. And he said, if you're ashamed of me and my word, then I will be ashamed of you. Now, the word ashamed, sometimes people mistake what it means. It, 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 quite often, people substitute timid or, or, or sort of somewhat so shy there. That, that, that if, I'm a, if I'm timid and, and I, I'm not the kind that can stand up against the bullies of this world when they're in full-fledged blasphemy of the gospel and of Christ, you know, other parts of Scripture deal with that. that that's not what is here. That's not what's being said. The word ashamed here speaks of a, a state of being. In fact, right out of the Greek dictionary, to experience a painful feeling or sense of loss of status because of some particular event or activity. Well, here that event or activity is very specific because another dictionary goes on and qualifies. It says the point of reference is not a virtue or vice, but confession in Christ. And so it takes on more of a meaning of denial and of rejection. In other words, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. That's exactly what Matthew says in his 10th chapter. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. So the the word ashamed here carries with it the context that I, I, I am ashamed of the word of God or the word of Christ. And so therefore, I in that shame, I reject it. I deny it. I don't live by it. I don't accept it as reality or as truth or I water it down and twist it into looking like I want it to look rather than what Jesus presents it as as being. Notice that when he talks about being ashamed, he says that whoever is ashamed of me and my words doesn't say whoever is ashamed of me And he doesn't just say, whoever's ashamed of my words. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. In other words, the two are inseparable. Most of you know, and especially if you were here for our study of John, the words, when we talk about Jesus, not just the words that he says, it's the word that he is, because that's exactly who he is. 
John starts out that great gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Logos. And the Word was God, 14th verse. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt amongst us. Jesus came. That's the Word of God incarnate. Jesus is the living Word. So it's impossible to separate Jesus and His Word. They're one and the same. And Jesus came to proclaim that Word, to warn us and tell us what the actual reality of heaven was and what the reality of earth is. And so therefore, we can't change. We can't separate the two. To be ashamed of the word of Christ is to be ashamed of Christ. To be ashamed of Christ is to be ashamed of his word. To be ashamed of Christ and his word is to be ashamed of the word of God. To be ashamed of the word of God is to be ashamed of God. And to be ashamed of God is spiritual suicide. You don't want to be ashamed of God to deny him, to reject him, or to switch his word. Because you know what happens when we deny the word of Christ? We exalt self. We're right back to that whole who's on the throne of your life uh, study that Luke has here. Because when you are ashamed of the word and of Christ himself then you are actually exalting self and putting yourself on a pedestal, raising yourself high, saying that I actually know more than Jesus does because he spoke 2,000 years ago and now things have changed. We live in a different environment. We have genetic research. We have all of this science and therefore we have to adjust the words of Jesus to the culture. I am exalting myself and I am disparaging and diminishing Christ. And Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me and my words, and the time comes, I'll be ashamed of you. Brothers and sisters, I'm not going to get off on a rabbit trail here, but I tremble when I actually say these words. Because as part of the last couple of sermons, I have pointed out that the teaching of modern Christendom is considerably different than what Jesus says here. That in many places that what is being taught and the Christology of today, the theology of the day, and the soteriology of today has vastly changed. And people are saying that Jesus didn't say that, he didn't mean that, or that he said that 2,000 years ago and it no longer holds uh, sway here. That we have to adjust his word and take it and change it to the modern day culture. Well, let me ask you a question. Just think about this. If Jesus says one thing, and I refuse to preach it and teach it to you because you don't want to hear it. If if Jesus puts things straightforwardly, there are two groups of people, those who accept him and those who do not. Those who accept him will go to heaven because I'm preparing a place for him. And those who do not will suffer the wrath of God and spend an eternity in hell. If If I say, I don't want, I know you don't want to hear it. So therefore, I'm not going to preach it to you. And I give you a different gospel. What? Why am I not preaching what Jesus said? Why would I not say it word for word what Jesus said and was written down in the gospels? Because I was ashamed of the words. And I was ashamed of Jesus. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, if that's true, then there are churches all over this country who are ashamed of Jesus and his word. Well, he goes on, and the reason that this brings such emotion is because he goes on and he makes the statement of the of the horrific consequences of being ashamed of him and his words. He goes on and says, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Notice, first of all, that he uses the title Son of Man. We've talked about what that title means. We've talked about when Jesus talks about himself as the Son of Man, he's not just referring to his humanity. But rather he is talking about himself in the context of redemptive history. I am the son of man. That means I am. Then I used to use the word cosmic Christ. I can't use it anymore because the heretics have taken it. But it talks about Jesus in a cosmic sense. He is the Messiah that before the foundations of the world, the God and the Holy Trinity determined that this is the way that he would deal with the problem of sin and sent his son at this particular point in time to be that redemption, the culmination of all of the covenants. 
That is who we talk about as far as the Son of Man is concerned. It will be the Son of Man who goes to the cross. It will be the Son of Man who is resurrected from the cross. And it will be the Son of Man who comes back in power and in glory. So Jesus says, you're ashamed of me. The Son of Man will be ashamed of you. What does it mean? What does it mean for the Son of Man to be ashamed of you? Think about that. You have one chance. One chance at redemption. There's only one way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is God's plan from all eternity past. And you spit in the face of God and reject His redemption. Where's it going to come from? If the Son of Man is ashamed of you and you stand before the holiness of God and your, your, your life of sin is spread out all over for literally word by word is seen. And the Son of Man will not come up and say, I died for that. I intercede for that. I'm the mediator between God's fierce wrath and, and, and your sinfulness. He says, I will be ashamed of you when that happens. And once again, I, I'm, I, I'm not making this up. This is not an isolated incident in Scripture. This is not the only time that Jesus said this. He is trying to reveal to you the reality of the kingdom of God. And the reality is this. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to be denied? To be not acknowledged? To have the Son of Man, the only chance for humanity? The total plan? There is no plan B. There is no alternate plan. There's no other ways up the mountain. There is one plan and one plan only, and it is Jesus Christ. And if He is ashamed of you, what does that mean? On that day... Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He goes on to talk about that day. You see, sometimes we get wrapped up in the reality or the... The, the, our understanding of Jesus, meek and mild, you know, Jesus, the friend, Jesus, my buddy. Uh, oh, he is those things. He, he is our loving friend and companion. He is all of those things, but that's not all he is. And that's not the way he's going to return, folks. The first time that he came, he came in humility. He came as a baby. He came to peasant parents. He lived his life in obscurity and the world rejected him and they, 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 they ultimately killed him and, and just to get rid of him and they defiled his name. But that's not the way that he will return. He says it right here at the end of it when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father. And of the holy angels. When Jesus returns it will be in power and glory. Once again Matthew in the Olivet Discord puts it this way. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Brothers and sisters in the beatitude. Jesus said blessed are those who mourn now. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins. Because there will come a day if you don't mourn over it now and turn to Jesus. You will mourn because there will be no other chance. All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Paul tells us that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Brothers and sisters, this is reality. This is the real world. The world we live in is a virtual reality. It's a manufactured world. What we give our lives to, what we give our attention to and our imagination to, what causes us stress and what we pour ourselves into, this is all passing away. None of it matters. The only thing that matters is Christ 
The only thing that matters is what you do for Christ. The only thing that matters is your profession of Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will last for eternity. For if you save your life now, you will lose your life eternal. Well, there's one more verse, and I'm not going to do it any justice. It's a verse of great enigma. And great controversy about what Jesus means, the 27th verse, but I want to keep on track. This is what he says, but I tell you the truth, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And, and there's a lot of different, you know, ideas about what he means by that, but I'm just going to give you one because it fits into what's going, what he is saying so far. Basically, what he is saying is that there are some who are standing here when the kingdom of God comes in whatever way he's talking about. But what he is telling the people even back then, 2,000 years ago, is that the kingdom of heaven is upon you. It is here. And all of this starts now. You are in that age. And so, therefore, what Jesus warns us against in the paradox, in the logical argument, and in the consequences of rejecting him, all are in place now in the life that you live. So, the the words that he says have slightly different meanings to who you are and which whoever you fit into. But before I spend just a few minutes, and I'm going to let you go. I'm winding down, so don't worry. This is not going to go on. (laughs) I see a lot of squirming going on out there. But I want you to see the reality and the fact that I don't care whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, there is a different reality than the one we live in. Isaiah is a great place to go to see the reality of what God is. God speaking through Isaiah says this, To whom will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's talking about the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. Because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the one who holds the universe together. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And the only reason I read that is I just want to set the tone for what I'm about to say. And the way that I'm going to say it, there's three whoever's that we have here. The first whoever are those who sell their soul to this life and give up their life eternal. And I know that some of you, if if you're still listening to me and that's you, then it's amazing, and, 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 and I would pay attention. Because if that's you, then the words that Jesus speaks are pure warning to you. In other words, as I said earlier, you, you would be one of the people who, even though you've heard the gospel, even though you've heard the good news, even though you've heard this discussion of the reality You say, I reject that reality. I know the preacher said that that was my one chance, but I don't accept it as my one chance. So I reject him and I reject you, speaking to God. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the master of my own faith. And I will actually arrange for my own salvation, regardless of what you say. So I categorically reject who you are and your plan of redemption. I spit in your face. And I'm sorry to put it in those terms, but that's exactly what you're doing. Because the God of heaven has planned an amazing redemption and it is there to be believed in and followed. And if you reject it for your own thoughts, then you're spitting in the face of God and you're trampling upon his redemptive plan that has been in place since the dawn of time. And you wonder why he would be angry at you. Don't stand before the great white throne of God and say that you have not been warned. Because that's exactly why Jesus said these words. To warn you. And I know this sounds like judgment. But it really isn't. Not on my part anyway. There is one much greater than I who will judge you. And he is far less. um, Stumbling with his words than I am. But I do pray for you. It breaks my heart. And I pray for your soul. And I ask God that he in his mercy and grace 
will soften your hardened heart and replace it with a heart that is capable of loving him and reveal himself to you so that you know that he is the only creator God of the universe and the only possible way that you will ever be redeemed and the only way that you will ever escape his wrath as your sinful life. But there's another group, and probably these last two groups are the the ones mainly that will benefit from this. There's another group, and Jesus doesn't mention this group. I'm, this is a logical group. This isn't one of the two whoevers. But there's a process by which people leave the whoever of darkness, the whoever of self, and make a transition to the whoever of light and follow Jesus as indeed their Lord and Savior. And for you, the, the words have kind of a special meaning because, yes, they're warning they're a warning to all of us. Come on, this is the reality of God. We, we, we worship a holy God. But they're also an invitation. In fact, they're an irresistible invitation. Because the Lord of glory is pulling you out of, out of darkness and bringing you into his marvelous light. And, and, and you didn't instigate that. And, and you're not in control of that. And you're not bringing it about. I don't know who you are. And more than likely, you don't know who you are. But you know that all of a sudden, there's something different. There's something that is not the way that it was. That, that, that where you were in enmity with God, now you have this strange affection for him. Where you didn't used to want to do anything but run from him, now you have this need to find him. And, and, and all of a sudden, these words and these warnings, instead of just making you mad and angry, they begin to strike at the very fiber of your soul. Well, if that's true, and that is indeed the Lord pulling you, let me encourage you. These are not just warnings, and, and you can't mess this up because you're not doing it. God is the one who is pulling you out of darkness into his light. Just, just, just relax, because he doesn't lose anyone. And, and the last thing you want to do is what I did, is run from him. Oh, please, my dear friend, don't run from him. You're just going to prolong your agony. When, when, when I first started feeling the, 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 the knock of Jesus at my door, my life was a mess too. I, I, I'd been abusing alcohol for 15, 20 years. I, I had, was just suffering through my second crash and burn business-wise. And, and for the most part, in a sense, I had pretty much wasted my young adulthood. And when Christ first started to pull me out of darkness, I, I was afraid. I, I was. I, I was literally afraid. What are people going to think of me, you know? What about all my friends? I have dreams. I have aspirations. I have plans. And quite frankly, they don't include Jesus. And so I wanted to hold on to that darkness. I wanted to hold on to the sewer. For some reason, I didn't want to leave it. And I look back at that and I'm amazed. Are you kidding me? Live in the sewer rather than live in the glorious light that is Christ. So please, if, if, if that's you, don't waste time. Do a 180. Turn around. Repent. Metanoia. Embrace Jesus, accept him as savior of your life. Because if you accept him as savior of your life, and he indeed is the one that's drawing you out of darkness, you will accept him as Lord. And the final group is, I think, hopefully most of us, those who have already been through the salvation process, have already come out of darkness, and are disciples on varying spots in the road wanting to follow our Lord Jesus Christ. And be very careful how you understand what I say. But we are the only ones of all these three groups that I've discussed who actually have a choice as far as this is concerned. Those who do not. And I'm not talking about salvation. We have no choice in salvation. That's already decided for us. No more than the, the, the person who rejects Jesus completely is acting according to their fallen nature. We are acting according to a redeemed nature. But in that, we have an old self and a new self. We're a new creation in Christ, but we still have the flesh. And so we have, actually, we are able to make a decision about what degree we are going to pursue Christ and what degree we're going to allow self to sneak back into our life. You see, that's why Luke says we have to, or Jesus says in Luke, that we have to pick up our cross daily because we constantly have an enemy, which is ourself, who wants to regain control of our life and is maniacally deluded, just like Satan, to believe that he actually can. Or she actually can, as the case may be. So let me give you a principle for the believer. Your work for the kingdom of God will be inhibited. 
your calling as a disciple compromised and your reward in heaven affected to the degree that self regains influence in your life now. So your life now is a constant struggle against that God of self who wants to be back on the throne of your life. You'll never get there, by the way. No way that you're going to get there, but that means he's not going to stop trying. And one other thing, and I'll let you go. Just one other thought. Jesus came to share the truth, to bear witness to reality, to tell us about the real world, which is God's real world. Now, when I look around me at the world today, I don't see a lot of people actually doing that. That was one of the purposes he came. That's what he told Pilate. I came to bear witness of the truth. There is a truth in heaven, and I came here to share it with you. And there's not a lot of people out there, even though they're in churches and they call themselves evangelical pastors, there's not a lot of people out there that are actually sharing that truth. They've diminished it. They've watered it down. They've twisted it. They've made it whatever they want to. And if we don't get out there and share and live the real world that Jesus came to tell us about, then who will? Who will? If those he is blessed with an understanding and a humility and a desire to hold true to his words as he shared them with us. If we don't share them with the world, who on earth will? Therefore, we have a calling. Not just to be Christians, not just to be pious. But to do everything that we do for his sake. And that includes... Sometimes sharing the reality of things to people who really don't want to hear it. You think about that. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, I know these are hard-hidden words. I know that, but my goodness, this is eternity. This is life and death. This is salvation and condemnation. These are the most important principles and the world that we live in is absolutely silent to it. They're they're, they're living uh, the lie of the reality that has been created for them. And so, dear Lord, I pray that you would give us not only the willingness but the opportunity to go beyond just trying to follow you but to be the very voice of the same reality that you brought so that we can tell people what it's like to live in the real world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.